Today, uh, we're going to talk about what repentance looks like. Um, or to put it another way, what do you do when you have blown it? Like when you have really screwed up. Um, I've certainly made lots of mistakes in my life. Um, any of you remember the comic strip, Dennis the Menace? Uh, yeah, they made, a, uh, they made a TV show, made it into a TV show in the late 50s, early 60s. They made it into a movie in 1993. If you haven't seen that movie, uh, Mr. Wilson is played by Walter Matthau. It's really a funny deal. Um, when I was a kid, I was Dennis the Menace. And so when we had a son, I was genuinely worried. Um, thank God he took after his mother. But um, So here are a few examples uh, from my youth of times when I screwed up. So um, I think I was about 12. My sister was six at the time. I was curious about this thing called a fire extinguisher. I was like, I wonder how this thing works. And I'm uh, just, you know, doing, pulling the pin, pressing it and everything, and I shot it right at my sister. I mean, it's this really fine particulate, and it coated her, and she stopped breathing. Like, literally for several seconds, she just stopped breathing. I thought she was going to die. Um, thankfully, obviously, she's, she started breathing, and she lived. Um, another time, so in middle school, I was in shop class and we were building things with, uh, using tin snips and sheet metal to build things. And uh, I built a Chinese throwing star and threw it at my teacher. <laughs> True story. Uh, another time I took a uh, vacuum tube, like from a vacuum, uh, like an old time vacuum is about this long, metal, uh, steel, about that big around, and an old, like a sewing needle, really big, heavy sewing needle and a piece of cloth, and I made a blowgun, and I hid in the bushes on the side of my house. My neighbor came home, and I was just like, <clears throat> and, it, and it went right into his arm, I mean deep. He pulled it out, and there's like blood running down. And, um, So another time, I discovered, I discovered hair, the, the magical combination of hairspray and a lighter. And I was so excited about my discovery, I opened, uh, my stepfather's in the bathroom. I opened the door of the bathroom, and I was like, hey, look! And I, I did this, and I did this, and the flame went all the way across the bathroom and lit his hair on fire. I mean, he's sitting on the toilet like, you know... <laughs> Now you know why I was afraid when my son was born, right? <clears throat> These are our true stories. I'm not embellishing. All right. So what do you do when you've messed up? What do you do when you've gotten yourself in a really bad situation and you're not sure what to do or how to get out? So this week we find Jonah in the belly of a, of a great fish or, or a whale, right? So... Talk about a bad situation. The, uh, the 18th century British author, Samuel Johnson, once wrote this. He said, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. So when a person is faced with the reality of their own death, uh, it has a way of focusing 
and clearing our mind of things that really don't matter that much. So this is where we encounter Jonah in our scripture today, inside the belly of a great fish. We don't, we don't know what kind of fish it was. Um, I already talked about that. Um, we do know that the Lord commanded the fish to swallow Jonah alive. So the fact that the fish appeared at just the right time, like right at the right moment, the right place, with just the right appetite, to swallow Jonah whole and not kill him uh, itself was a miracle. So can you imagine like what it was like inside this fish? I mean, it's dark, so you can't move around very much. Like maybe there's some fish swimming around you. There's salt water like splashing over you. Like there's seaweed kind of like wrapped around your legs. Um, who knows what else is in there with you, right? Probably doesn't smell that good in there either. Uh, it's probably greasy, probably slippery. Um, like literally this thing is trying to digest you. So this past June in Provincetown, Massachusetts, a lobster fisherman, his name is Michael Packard, was actually swallowed by a whale. True story. It was a humpback. Um, I will let him tell you what it's like to be swallowed by a whale. So let's take a look. We begin with breaking news and what could be the story of the year. A lobster diver nearly eaten alive by, get this, a humpback whale. Sounds like a story from a children's book. Good evening and thanks for joining us. I'm Audrey Assistio. So this happens this morning off the Cape Cod coast and now that man is telling his tale. So let's go ahead and get right out to NBC10's Mike Manzoni live in Wellfleet. Mike, obviously this is a very wild story, but how is he doing? Is he okay? His name is Michael Packard. He lives here in Wellfleet. He got home a couple hours ago. We were there when he arrived home from Cape Cod Hospital, only uh, amazingly with minor injuries. He tells me that he was about 45 feet underwater this morning off the coast of Provincetown, lobster diving, when all of a sudden everything went black around him. He soon realized he was in the mouth of a humpback whale. You want to sit on <laughs> Michael Packard came home from the hospital Friday afternoon with one incredible story to tell. And I just felt this truck hit me and everything just went dark. He was lobster diving off the coast of Provincetown when the world around him suddenly blacked out. Just thought, did I just get eaten by a white shark? And, and then I said, no, I don't feel any teeth. And I said, oh, my God, I'm in the mouth of a whale with his mouth shut. Seconds later, he realized he was in serious trouble. To make things even worse, he couldn't find the regulator for his oxygen tank, and he had no way to escape. Am I just going to, like, run out of air and suffocate? Yeah. Is he going to swallow me? That's when he thought about his family. And I'm like... This is how you're going to go, Michael. This is how you're going to die. In the mouth of a whale. His son Jacob was in school at the time and got a text from his mother. Yeah, your, your dad was, was diving and a whale just, I don't know, attacked him, ate him. The humpback whale eventually spit him out after about 30 or 40 seconds. And I just got thrown out of his mouth 
into the water. It was just white water everywhere. And I guess was laying on the surface floating. That doesn't seem like a long time, but try telling that to someone who almost became a whale's hot lunch. I have a dislocated knee and um, just a lot of soft tissue damage in my legs. Um, I also was scared that I had maybe a diving injury from coming up too fast or an embolism. But everything's good. The doctor says I'm good. And the doctor says everything's good. Certainly not words he expected to hear this morning. He never expected to survive, much less already be out of the hospital and home recovering with his family tonight. And that's really maybe the most amazing uh, part of all this, the craziest part of this whole story, is that he says that he plans to get back in the water, lobster diving, what he loves doing as soon as he recovers, and he hopes that'll be sometime soon. For now, we're live in Wellfleet. Mike Manzoni, NBC10, Boston. So that guy was in that whale for less than a minute, right? Imagine being in a whale for three days. So Jonah 2.1 says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. So while he's inside the fish, he comes up with this beautiful prayer. It's like a psalm. So first, he cries to God for help. Verse 2 says, he said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. Jonah doesn't, he knows that if God doesn't save him, he'll never get out of this thing alive. So second, he confesses that God put him where he is, and he accepts the Lord's discipline. Uh, verse three says, you threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. So Jonah doesn't blame the sailors for throwing him in. Jonah doesn't blame the fish. He knows who's behind it all. It's God. Essentially, Jonah humbles himself and says, I am here because you put me here. Uh, it is a good sign when we stop blaming others for our problems. Um, Jonah knows he has to answer to the Lord alone. Third, he feels like he's going to die in the great fish. Jonah uh, 2, 5 says, I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. So there's no way apart, there's no way out apart from God. If God doesn't rescue him, he is Sunday lunch. Right? So fourth, he remembers that the Lord is his only hope. Verse seven says, as my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. Jonah's reached the end of the line and God has Jonah's undivided attention. Um, fifth, Jonah vows to serve the Lord. Verse nine says, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise and I will fulfill all my vows for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. So you can see the spiritual progress that he's making through this prayer. First, he cries out to God for help. Second, he confesses that it's God who put him where he is, and he accepts the Lord's discipline. Third, he thinks he's going to die. Fourth, he remembers that the Lord is his only hope. And then fifth, Jonah vows to serve the Lord. He comes to the great conclusion at the end of verse 9. 
says, my salvation comes from the Lord alone. That is the hardest lesson for any of us to learn, that salvation begins and ends with God. It is literally when, when we come to the end of ourselves and we just fall at the foot of the cross and we just submit to the Lord. Some of us struggle our whole lives to learn this lesson. Most of us have to learn it and relearn it again. Unfortunately, some of us never learn it at all. But that's the advantage of being in the belly of a, of a whale, right? Uh, it clears your mind so that you can focus on what matters most. Most of us would probably hear more from the Lord if we spent a few days inside a whale or at least someplace where there are no distractions in life. In the terrifying darkness inside the whale, Jonah realized really how silly it is to, to run or to fight or to argue with the Lord. One author wrote, our arms are too short to box with God. Uh, he will win every time. So I want to switch gears here for a moment. Uh, there's another example in scripture of someone who royally messed up and then had to get back on track. It's really another example of a model of repentance. And it's King David. You probably know the story. It's in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, 1 through 4 says, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know that she gets pregnant, and then David tries to cover his tracks and has Uriah brought in from the battlefield for a little R&R, right? David suggests that Uriah go home um, spend some time with his wife, but Uriah refuses. Um, he didn't want to be home enjoying his, his, his bed and his wife while his soldiers were on the battlefield. So David then sends him back into battle with a letter that he's supposed to give to his commanding officer, uh, essentially telling him to put Uriah on the front lines of battle and then to have the rest of the army withdraw so that Uriah would die. And that's what happened. Uriah is killed in battle. And then David marries Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. David thought he'd gotten away with it. But uh, verse 27 there says, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And then it's not long before the prophet Nathan shows up to confront David with his sin. Nathan told David, because of what you have done, your baby will die. So imagine how David felt about that. So like Jonah, David had blown it in a big way and now it was time to face the music. 
In 2 Samuel 12, 13, David confesses to Nathan. Um, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. So David, of course, loses this son. Um, there was no changing that. But then he had to make things right with God and get his life back on track. And you can read about it in Psalms 32 and uh, 51. Um, but here's what we learn about repentance from King David. Um, first, we need to identify the areas in our life where we've messed up. David said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So there are primarily two ways in which God reveals to us areas that he wants us to work on. Um, the first is he will reveal it uh, directly through prayer, through fasting, and through scripture. Um, or he will reveal it indirectly through other people in our life, like a, like a Nathan. So I have a diagram to show you what I mean, and it's also on the back of your sermon notes. Um, Across the top, there's uh, what I know about myself and what I don't know about myself. And then along the side, there's what you know about me and what you don't know about me. So the top left quadrant, um, upper left quadrant, is that's open public knowledge. Top right quadrant is our blind spot, right? It's the things you see about me that I don't see about myself. Um, the bottom left quadrant, those are things that you know about yourself that others don't. And that bottom right quadrant, um, those are the things that you don't know about yourself and neither do others. God often reveals these things to us. Um, we can sometimes discover that we have um, previously hidden gifts or talents or perhaps you know, you've been working with a counselor and um, you're discovering a new level of self-awareness. Um, or maybe you do a life mapping exercise where you start to see the big picture of your life story and how God has been moving in your life, right? And what God has been preparing you for. A life map, I don't know if you've heard of that. We'll probably include that in, uh, in the Life Church 201 class that we'll launch next spring. Um, but let me get to back to quadrant two for a minute, the blind spot quadrant. Most of us probably don't think much about our blind spots. Um, our perception of ourselves typically is, is like this. Look at, look at this, the next one. There's a second one. Yeah, there it is. Uh, that, that's typically the way we think about ourselves, <laughs> right? Um, However, some of us, if we were to start asking the people who are very close to us, the people who really know us and who are not afraid to be ruthlessly honest with us, um, they might admit to us um, really that we look more like this and go to the next one. Yeah. Any of you know people like this? <laughs> it's like like um, everybody sees this thing about this person but themselves. Okay. None of us want to be that person, um, which is why we need to be open to what God might have to reveal 
to us about what's hidden in our life, and it's also why we need to have Nathans in our life to help us see blind spots. We all have them. So are there people in your life who you've given permission to show you your blind spots? Like to tell you the things that you might not wanna hear or the things that might be painful for you to hear? Or are you like the guy who's blind? He lives on his own. He's got spinach in his teeth. He's got coffee stains on his shirt. His hair cuts all, all uh, messed up. And he's got no one to tell him so he can fix it. Right? We're supposed to speak the truth in love to one another. We're supposed to spur one another on to loving good deeds. So the f- first step is identifying areas where we've messed up. Second, we need to be honest with God about what we've done. Um, whether our guilt involves others or not, um, it definitely involves God. All sin is against God. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, David said this to God in Psalm 51.4. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So it's important to humble ourselves before God, acknowledge our sin, and ask for his forgiveness. We need to fess up. Uh, We don't want to blame others or make excuses. We want to take responsibility for our actions before God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So third, uh, we need to accept his forgiveness. Greatest truth in the verse I just read is that God is always faithful. His forgiveness is unconditional. The enemy will try to convince us that God could never forgive us for what we've done. But God said the exact opposite. David said it in Psalm 32, one through five. It says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So for the believer who truly repents, there is no record kept of the debt that God erases. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Fourth, if necessary, uh, we need to make restitution. If we've wronged someone else, we need to ask that person for their forgiveness. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Maybe it's monetary restitution that's needed, right? Like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, 
um, who realized that he had cheated so many people, he decided he needed to go and make things right with them. Um, that may be you. And the final step is to turn around and go in the other direction. Like, you're going in one direction, right? And you do a 180, and you start going in the other direction. Right? In the Bible, this is what is called repentance. Now, it's possible to do all the other things that I mentioned and not repent. Um, repentance involves turning away from evil. It is a change of thinking that results in a change of direction in our life. Um, this may mean you change who you hang out with. It may mean you change how you spend your free time. Um, it may mean you make sure you're never alone when you travel. Uh, it may mean you need to install some software on your computer that lets someone know what you're looking at. Uh, it may mean you don't go to certain stores. It may mean that you cut up your credit cards. It could mean something more drastic, taking more drastic measure, like um, getting into a 12-step recovery program, uh, changing jobs, uh, moving to a new neighborhood, cutting off your relationship totally with certain people. Jesus told a parable uh, that I think gives the best picture of what, it, what happens when we repent. Like, what does repentance look like? Uh, you may have heard of it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15, 11 through 31. I'm sure most of you know it, but I will summarize it. So a young man went to his father, and he said, give me my share of my inheritance. So the father did. And the young man took the money, he left his family, and he went to a far-off country where he spent his money on wild living. I'm sure he had a lot of fun, right? But eventually money ran out, and the famine came. It was the end of the line. The end of the line always comes sooner or later, right? I'm betting when the money ran out, his so-called friends, right, disappeared. That's usually the way it goes. So now he's trying to make some money by feeding pigs, and he's starving. Like, even the swill that the pigs are eating, like, looks good to him. The Bible says that when the prodigal son, like, he, he came to his senses, and he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And then he began the, low, the long, slow, difficult journey home. He's probably, he's probably ashamed. He's probably embarrassed of what he had done. He's wondering what his father will do. Jesus said that the father saw his son when he was just a, he was a long way off. If you think about it, that means he had been waiting for a long time for his son to come home. His neighbors probably had made fun of him, like, 
Come in, old man. Don't keep standing out there waiting for your son. He's not coming back. But he didn't give up hope that one day his son would come home. Day after day, I'm sure he waited, and then he waited some more. Then one day, he sees like a little tiny speck, right, on the horizon. Is that my boy? Is that my boy? It is my boy, right? And then the father takes off, right? Scripture says, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He couldn't wait to see his son again. After his father hugged and kissed him, the son said, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. That was the speech he had rehearsed, right? He was going to say, make me one of your hired hands, but he doesn't even have a chance to say that. The father wouldn't even let him speak those words. Why? Because once a beloved son, always a beloved son. A son at home, a son far away, a son in the pigsty, and a son on his way back home. That's why the father said, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And then it says the party began. This is the character of the heart of God. He is a father who has left the lights on and the doors open. He's a father who, when we run from him, when we go our own way, when we screw up big time, he still stands there waiting for us to repent and to turn back to him. Right, remember, repenting is doing a 180. The father stands waiting for his prodigal sons and daughters to come back home to him. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, clean yourself up first. He just says, come home. He says, if you're tired of living in the far off country, if you're tired of running away, and you're ready to come home, that door is open for you. We can come home to the Father because Jesus paved the way with his own blood. When Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 12, he called his own resurrection the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The story of Jonah points us to Jesus, and the story of Jesus tells us how far God will go to rescue those who have run from him. I was intentional in calling this series Jonah Amazing Grace because that's what we learned from the story. That God's grace welcomes home the worst of sinners into the courts of heaven. It makes way for even religious people to be forgiven of smug self-righteousness. And it provides a way home for the rebel son who essentially, when he told his father, I want my inheritance from you, 
he's essentially saying, I wish you were dead. God's grace reaches out and says, Jesus paid the price for all of it. He's covered all your transgressions, and when you are ready, you can come home. But don't wait too long. Now, there may be some of you listening uh, to me this morning who have not yet come home to the Father. Um, If that is the case, I will tell you right now there is nothing more important than what I'm about to say. If you have not made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that right now. Or perhaps you've drifted away from the Lord and you sense him drawing you back and you're ready to draw that line in the sand and recommit your life to Jesus. I want to lead us in a prayer. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you want to accept him as the Lord of your life, you can pray silently along with me this prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making me and loving me even when I have ignored you and gone my own way. I realize I need you in my life. And I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please help me to understand it more. As much as I know how, I want to follow you from this day on. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. Please help me to grow now as a Christian by filling me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.